welcome to the Socking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's Creative Director. Today is Valentine's Day, and to coincide with this holiday of love, consumerism, and possibly depression, we have an interview with writer-musician Adam Gennady, whose book I Wish to Say Lovely Things comes out today. Adam originated in the West Coast scene of DIY punk shows, releasing zines and developing his talking songs, spoken word backed by folk and experimental music. For the past 14 years, he's been living in rural Kansas, putting out books and music, and in 2021, he started a tape label called Hello America to release audiobooks, poetry, and stories with and without musical backing. Two talking writing poems with music were accepted and put out on their fall compilation last year, which led us to conducting this interview. All of Adam's books are linked, following interconnected characters through the stories. I Wish to Say Lovely Things focuses on snapshots from the early 2000s through the COVID pandemic that show the career arc of indie musician Byron through the eyes of protagonist James Bozick. After an initial splash of critical and underground success, public enthusiasm for Byron wanes, negatively impacting his mental health and leaving James to contemplate his path. I wanted to start off with um, with your last book, The Internet Newspaper, and the, the myth of the starving artist, which you bring up in that. So if you could um, just read uh, the section that we talked about um, on page 74 from People Say to Romanticize, um, I think that'll give a good context for the question. Okay, so <clears throat> page 74, Internet Newspaper. People say you've got to suffer to make art. When I suffer, I'm a walking corpse. If I'm happy, if I'm safe, that's when I can write. I'm not sure whether the suffering artist thing is a myth or a joke or a scam or some ugly combination of all three. Whatever it is, it's a load of poisonous, self-defeating horseshit. We all suffer. Pain is something to heal from, not romanticize. Yeah, and and I've I've kind of thought about this a lot, especially the romanticizing of the starving artist, and I think it, that it paves the way for being fine with letting artists starve. And if there's truth to the cliche, it seems like it's because artists are frequently ignored or undervalued, uh, especially if that's their primary drive, if they don't have like a backup. Um, so yeah, could you unpack your own thoughts about and experiences surrounding uh, this myth and this notion? Well, it's a it's a complex issue, I guess, like all issues are, if you think about them enough. It's kind of, it's I guess it's sort of vampiric in a way, and sort of, um, you can look at it as sort of gross and, and predatory. But also, I mean, being an artist is like a privileged thing, and you can choose to be an artist, or you can choose to get a job. I've chosen to be an artist and make my living off of it for a long time. And I could have chosen to do another to, to to work another kind of job, but I didn't. So it's sort of like you bring you bring it on yourself to a certain degree. So I've um, I've definitely put myself into precarious situations over the years because of of uh, continuing to work in arts. But 
um, I, I don't, I don't really have a hard, I have a hard time feeling sorry for myself or <laughs> almost anyone else for, for, uh, for being, for starving. Are you really starving? I don't know. Maybe you are, um, but maybe you've just, you've chosen to take this certain path. And for me, I've been doing it for so long that I can't, it's, it's hard to unpack what, what it would have been elsewhere, but, or in another, another life, but, um, I've, I don't ever, I, I've, I've definitely been poor. I'm not right now. And I've never really felt like undervalued or, or ignored. I kind of got lucky with, with my work where it, it's always kind of gotten recognition, even from the beginning, even when it didn't warrant it or earn it. So on that side of it, I don't feel, um, I don't feel at all like I need more attention than I should be getting. And at the end of the day, there's there's another aspect to it where, you know, we're all looking for inspiration. And I think a lot of people like to see people suffer, not in a, not suffer in a painful way, but suffer and fight and struggle for something that they believe in. And um, they like to see somebody struggling for what they what they might believe to be a noble goal. And um, I'm the same way. I'm always looking for inspiration. And I. I, I I read you know artists that you know somebody like Roberto Bolaño's early work or Henry Miller or um, even like even reading reading about the life of Dickens but maybe not reading Dickens you know we like to we like to see somebody working towards something because it inspires us and feel, makes our our work feel a little easier or a, a, like a, I don't know a little less strained maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had a. a longer part of this question that touched on Henry Miller because, um, you know, he, he was somebody who was constantly, uh, sort of broke asking money from friends all the time. And, um, and also, uh, voluntarily left his job, you know, he did, uh, just sort of like walk out on his job. Um, but there was a scene in the Rosie crucifixion, I think it's in Plexus, uh, where he's like, sitting down at his writing station at his writing desk and getting like really uh, fired up about all the things that he's written. And then the landlord comes in and evicts him. And um, for some reason that scene just always set off for me. Like what if, what if Henry Miller was stable though? What if he was able to have his one place where he was like able to do all his work for a long period of time and wasn't scrounging all the time, you know, like what, what, what would his, his work have looked like then? Yeah. I mean, he might've not done anything. He might've not been Henry Miller as we know, Henry Miller. Right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have been as rewarding an experience to read his work because he's always, he's somebody that is kind of on a, on a journey, I guess. He's always looking for something. And I think it's it's inspiring to see somebody that's 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 looking, that's always looking and trying to find a certain thing, even if they don't know what that thing is, even if that thing is kind of an unknowable goal or or path or or whatever else that is. So yeah, and also in the internet newspaper, uh, if you could read the the section from page ninety six to ninety seven, uh, there is something to Mom's house. This is something I would never admit to anyone, especially here at the paper. I'm happier not knowing what's going on in the world. The bad stories stick with me. As soon as I know about them, I put the people I love in the places of those who have died, and I can't help thinking about it until it skips through my head in an awful, lurching, overwhelming loop of the worst images you can imagine. 
Will Cassidy and Joey Carr blown to pieces in the streets of Gaza. Frankie and her sister shot by cops in her mom's in their mom's house. I've uh, very much tried to ignore the news because I feel like it has a negative effect on people's mental health, on my own mental health, and creates a feeling of helplessness about everything bad that happens in the world, among other reasons. Uh, what's your relationship been with the news, especially as someone who's worked in newspaper writing for um, for for several years, I think? Uh, yeah, if, if you want to go over also like your the history of your newspaper experience too. Yeah. I, I, um, I quit journalism in 2007. My idea, idea whole all along was that I would work in journalism as a way to learn how to write. And then as soon as anybody offered to publish a book of mine, I would quit. And so I, I was offered a, Saying a book deal is kind of feels silly in this sense, but I, at the time I was offered a very small book deal with a with a publisher that doesn't exist anymore in Rhode Island, and um, to publish my first book, which was called Him California, and so I stopped writing journalism back then. So I guess I I did it for about six or seven years, um, eight years, pretty constantly, and. It it worked. I, I I think I learned a lot from it and then um, got out. But yeah, I, I go back and forth with the news. Uh, I'm either reading it, every article, and being very invested with the times we're in, or you know, like like you were saying, like heading in the opposite direction, which is self-preservative a lot of the time. But I think it's better to know what's going on, and you know, to try to make a difference in the world. Uh, but the, the idea is like how do how do you make a difference in the face of the of a burning world and uh you've got to try you've got to work toward a better world but you know figuring out how to do that is just it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do i just don't want to ever be put in a position where somebody might ask like you saw what was going on why didn't you try why didn't you try to stop what was happening with any small bit of um, ability you had when you had the chance. So um, I guess I've, I want to stay invested and try to do what I can just for, you know, like the children that are in my life and, and the, and anyone else who's going to be, is going to live beyond me because we've, you know, we've left them with a broken world. And um, the question is, how do we change that? And it's a, it's a question I ask myself every day. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. I I don't know how to change the world. You know, I feel like I I'm trying to participate as much as possible. Just um, I guess in discussing these subjects and trying to create a better narrative um, around these problems. But I I also uh, I guess I guess that's another thing I'm confused about. It's like it's just tough to yeah. It's tough to know like what kind of action to take, and I'm not sure exactly what how to how to reconcile that yeah and i think it's a lifelong process i mean we're we're most of us aren't politicians or or are in places of power or soldiers or revolutionaries or or activists for that matter so it's something that we will always have to be redefining and actively actively looking to uh, implement in our lives it's frustrating it's, it's frustrating and it's but it, I guess it should be frustrating or we wouldn't be faced with the problems that we're faced with. These are my unrealistic expectations. 
I want to be left alone by pain and I want to be given the heat of life. I want the ones I love to be left unscathed. I want a very small group of people that I love to live forever. This is a plea for the world of tomorrow. This is a wish and a want, an invocation yet again. This is a question I actually wrote um, today that came up um, that had dropped off of my mind, but um, it goes back to All About Love by Bell Hooks, which you said was a, uh, which you cited as an influence for um I wish to say lovely things, your new book. And, um, to me, you know, that, that book is like a bestseller, uh, all the blurbs and the positive critical reviews are from like huge names in the national press. Um, and it seems to be very popular and, but the ideas in it, especially the anti-patriarchal and anti-power ideas, uh, seems, seem radical still. And it makes me wonder like if, if that's, so popular and, you know, something like manufacturing consent, uh, can, can gain such a high level of popularity. It's, uh, it makes me think like, why is the public political discourse still so narrow and still like, hasn't seemed to have moved in in the direction like that I would like to see those thoughts create, you know? Um, yeah. Do you, do you have any, uh, thoughts about that? Yeah, that's been, that's been a shock to me. I've seen, I've seen that book at um, like every airport bookstore that I've been to for the past maybe year, and and Target, and 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 Target doesn't really have a good book section that you would consider any kind of book good book section. Um, it's it's weird. It's really weird, and I'm not sure if there's like some weird. It's like one of those books that everybody buys but doesn't read. I hope they're actually reading it because. I mean, it, it it is something that is very important. It's a very important book, and it does give me a little hope that maybe somebody's going to pick that up at Target or JFK or Lindbergh Field or something like that and read it on the plane and and think differently about how people treat each other and how they should be treating the people in their lives. Now, now this episode will come out on Valentine's Day, and uh, the new book I just mentioned, I wish you, I, I wish to say, lovely things, is officially released today. Um, and the internet newspaper was also released on Valentine's Day last year. Is there any other significance for you about Valentine's Day, or is that just a um, coincidence, or just like a good? You felt like it was a good date to pick, or? Well, I mean, Valentine's Day is a terrible holiday for a lot of people. <laughs> you know, it's awful. You're alone and you're not wanting to be alone. And growing up, I had a lot of horrible Valentine's Days. I don't have horrible ones so much anymore. But uh, I have always... I like the idea of releasing things, releasing a book on Valentine's Day. I mean, just you know, even just like a minor way you can give somebody something. Maybe they're lonely and having a shitty day. But like, you know, here's a book. Maybe it'll make you feel something better, less alone, less bored, more loved or understood. So um, I think my all of my books for the last few years have come out on holidays. 
since um, 2020, which was, you know, like the loneliest year in history. So it's intentional. And also it goes back to uh, there's a pivotal chapter in my book. This is the end of something, but it's not the end of you that takes place on Valentine's Day. And that was the first book of mine that came out on Valentine's Day in 2020. So it all kind of bounced off of there. And at first it was kind of just like a funny thing because of, because of the, like the, that chapter is very centered around Valentine's Day. Uh, and anyone reading this or listening to this that has read that book, it's the chapter set in Mexico, if they if they remember. Um, but then it became just then it became a thing. <laughs> and it's the book is largely about love. Um, and as I mentioned before, you say all about love as uh, by bell hooks as an influence. Um, I came across a few core ideas uh, about love and spirituality that have been coming up elsewhere in my reading and in my life. Um, And I wanted to hear your thoughts about them. In particular, her assertion that the core of Christianity's mystical dimensions are the belief that we are all one, that love is all, echoes uh, ideas that I've been finding elsewhere, often unintentionally, um, that we are all interconnected and bound by love seems to be a core revelation of most religions and many transformative experiences, such as strong aesthetic experiences, transcendental religious experiences, psychedelics, and even reports of alien abductions, which was like the most surprising to me. I didn't know that was an aspect of that. Um, and how, how do you feel about this notion, um, you know, the interconnectedness of everybody and love as like a glue for, for all of humanity? And I, I like the idea that we're all bound by love, and I hope it's true. I hope it's true. I do know that love, you know, it's the most meaningful thing we've got. You know, love, like the book is, a, is about love in many different forms. So, you know, love of family, love of purpose, romantic love. Um, so love is a thing worth, you know, it's worth sticking around for, but it's also, of course, you know, a source of a massive source of anguish and pain that we should be, we should all be one. But do we act that way? For the most part, I don't think so. But I have noticed that I, I do think it's possible. And I do think that it's, it's a good thing to push towards and to, and to put out there into the world. It also makes me think, um, a lot of times when I think about that idea, um, it makes me a little bit sad just in terms of the divisions that we put up and um, just the fact that there are so many different areas that have sort of come to the same conclusion yet continue to stay divided and not listen to each other. You know, Um, that seems to me to be like, I guess uh, not, heeding their own advice or not listening to like the, the thing that they, that they're purporting to believe in, you know? Yeah. I mean, it seems like we, we all kind of know, we all, most people probably get it, but we don't really act on it. And we, we've got this, you know, we've got this information and we've got these ideas, but at the end of the day, we're like, no, but actually like, I'm terrified of my neighbors and I hope they're not going to come to the door. And like, I really hope that, I can get through this day, you know, without this truth coming out or like my boss coming down. I mean, they're, like, we're just, I, I kind of just hope I can get through the day without getting hurt a lot of the times. And I think a lot of us are like that. I understand why we're so, why we don't heed our own advice because it just, you know, for some reason, us all just getting through the day is 
is hard for most people, hard enough for most people to not do anything else. This is the world of today. We live in fear of our neighbors and the signs in their yards. The world of tomorrow is a dream. The world of today will hunt you in the darkness like a man as pale as clouds. The world of today will shoot up your classroom. The world of today will not change for you or anyone. The world of today wants its freedom. And the world of today will not hide its face. The world of today is a hunger. Our TV sets glowing blue and loud as a riot, and we laugh on the couch. While outside the flames rise higher. In the new book, you you describe James, uh, the the protagonist, listening to sets by uh, other musicians, Byron, Henry, and TC at South by Southwest. And it felt to me uh, like you were also ha- honing your own aesthetic through the experience of watching. And I want to be careful not to, uh, again, not to conflate fiction and what's happening in the story with like things that happen in your own life. Um, but when you were writing that and describing it, um, I guess, were you talking about uh, experiences where you were sort of also discovering like where you wanted to go artistically by watching these other artists? Or did you feel like it was more of you like seeing a scene develop that was sort of interconnected? Yeah, um, well, I would say it's it's a little bit of both. Um, so in that scene, I'm trying to describe a scene that existed and had, you know, kind of a shared aesthetic, though most of the bands didn't sound anything alike. Um, but the, the big reason for that section is to keep some of that alive, which, you know, like that's one of the best things you can do with writing to preserve what you love. You know, so you have the ability to say this thing or person or idea or place or whatever else is important, and I'm going to treat it as if it's important because it deserves that treatment. But it's also, like you said, it's also about shaping an aesthetic, and identity, which is a lot of what James, the character, gets from Byron, the character, a, a direction to go in, that which is also talked about in, in that chapter. Because, um, you know, some of us need, like, a guide more than the path, maybe? Or maybe the guide becomes the path. And I feel like his um, following of Byron's career also... Um especially in the way that uh, Byron is sort of like held up as a critical darling at the beginning. And then like the critical um, attention seems to fade away with each release. Uh, And then he has that, that uh, last release, or I don't know if it's a last release um, that it was like sort of a disjointed album where it was like some of his best stuff, like put right next to what sounded like demos and very raw material uh, and not liking it very much. Um, For me, that brought up a lot of like feelings about um, just the way that the public attention and the external validation and one's artistic career uh, can sort of 
propel, but then also once it's gone, confuse an artist, you know, um, like they don't know what to make of, of the fact that like everybody has stopped paying attention to them. You know, is there something that you were trying to express through that arc? Um, there wasn't anything in regards to that that I was trying to express with with that part of it. But I've seen I've seen that happen with people in my life, where especially if it's a if it's a first or second release that gets a lot of attention, it 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 can damage them and, and hurt their work and hurt themselves, and they spend the rest of their career reacting to that especially if they listen to their if they listen to their critics or you know which it's hard not to or if they pay attention to dwindling numbers which you can or you can choose not to it depends on how much of it is your livelihood um it can be horribly damaging it can destroy you and i've seen i've seen i've seen people's work suffer and i've also seen people suffer um on a grander scale because of that or just stop completely which is another thing and i feel like i've kind of like in my life i've gone in and out of various scenes that i kind of lose everybody by you know small acts of attrition where people drop off they die they they quit um and i i i know that a lot of people a lot of my friends that have made made work have, have quit because of react the, the audience's reaction the lack of reaction or the or the changing reactions to their work and it's hard not to pay attention to that stuff the the biggest drop-off that i saw for me was um when when streaming music really became a thing like after that radiohead record was released that um what was um was that in rainbows or something like that i don't know um and then it kind of changed the way that everyone saw. I mean, speaking of in, 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 of, of my friends and bands, that a lot of people were making a living right before that, and then were completely unable to. And a lot of people just had to had to quit, right? Because they couldn't devote as much of their life as they were, and they couldn't tour. They had to, you know, make a living, which I completely understand. I'm very glad not to make a living, not to have to make a living off of recorded music. That. Um, very daunting the idea of that is very daunting i mean even with my audio recordings like right before streaming music hit in the way that it hit i was prop i didn't have any books yet out at that point but i was able to make a living off of just recorded of, of cds you know cds and tapes of my stuff and then like when streaming music became more of a thing when downloadable music became more of a thing like i God, my, my first book came out, so it, it was okay. But like, I I immediately saw like CDs just like just stop selling completely, and now like it's it seems like it's coming back up a little bit more. Um, but like, God, I would I would hate to have to like m- try to make a living with recorded music right now. Right, and, and I, I guess my experience was a little bit different because I uh, we started playing after that, <laughs> so like. And and I talked about this with um, Chris and Ryan from Man Man too in in Weird Music, where they they also just missed that cutoff of like of like even getting a taste of it. So I guess that you know I feel like there's a different mindset when you're going into it, knowing that this is the challenge, this is the uphill battle that you're going to have to already deal with. You know, 
Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of South by Southwest, because uh, we we went down there from probably uh, like 2007 to 2019 uh, pretty regularly. I think we took a couple years off. But I remember having like this impression of South by Southwest as being like, oh, this awesome place where like under like people who are never heard of can go and get heard by different labels and stuff like that. And it's like um, and even like even if you don't have a show, you can go down there and play and like, you know, just play on the street and it'll be fine. And uh, and then getting down there, it was like way, way different than I thought it would be. And I kind of um, definitely had a a bubble burst of sort of uh, disillusionment with like, oh, this is what this is really like. And over the, the course of the whole time I was there, it seemed more like a reflection of what was already happening in the music scene. Uh, what's what's your relationship been with, with South by Southwest and your sort of your thoughts about it? Well, I've only been the once um, uh, in 2006. And at the time, yeah, the, the same thing of what you said. I, I did feel like all my friends that were in small bands were playing there. And some were, were playing off, off festival shows and on the streets um, in parking lots. And also, but also everybody that I liked from afar was also playing all the bigger bands. And it, it seemed like a, it seemed like a great moment of everything that I thought was good was there in that one place. And it, it, it felt really good. I still, at the same time, I thought that all my friends who were playing there were still my kind of my little secret, you know, I didn't realize how big they were at that point and wouldn't realize it for maybe another few months or year. Uh, but that's the only one I've ever been to. And I have no, um, I don't really have any desire to go back the i don't really like festivals or being around an industry i like crowd big crowds of people but not when they're you know like gathered for a purpose uh, I, I think people are at their worst when they herd together my hope for you is that you will get it softer than most i hope you will find friends i hope you will find love and that the love you find will feel like a castle wall I hope you will dream easy dreams, and in the morning I hope you will sing to yourself as you make breakfast in a sunny kitchen. I hope you will think this is the life, and mean it. I hope you will look your demons right in the eye, and I hope you will say, no, you can't have me. I hope you will never tire of thunderstorms. I hope you will hold on to the dreams you had when you first began to dream. This is my hope for you. I hope you will feel safe where you are, but also as wild as a flooding river and untamed as vining rose in morning glory. This is my hope for you. So if, if we could do another reading, uh, this one from I Wish to Say Lovely Things uh, on page 60, um, from in 2006 to older thing. 
In 2006, everything begins to happen. This is how it feels. Everything is happening after nothing happened for a long, for so long, and after me wanting everything to happen and expecting everything to happen and trying my best while getting insignificant returns. Everything begins to happen. The press our scene gets speaks at length about a new form of folk music, though none of what we're doing is new, just different. Our own version of an older thing. Yeah, and th- this passage really resonated with me because I've had similar feelings. Um, like, I feel like I've been, you know, when I feel like I've been pushing and pushing and pushing on something without results, and then uh, sometimes it even happens where, like, I feel like I give up, and then something happens, like something breaks through, and it's like, oh, I gotta, now I gotta follow through on this. Um, but uh, I guess what I want to explore is, like, the 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 feeling from the artist or the the first person feeling of what it feels like to um have that lag w- between like the the hard work that you're putting in and um not feeling like you've done every anything different but then all of a sudden something changes um and what that feels like and what it feels like on the in be- in the in between like before it happens um what what are your thoughts about about that it's that's a weird thing. Um, I I actually I really like that. Um, I think it gives you hope that anything could happen at any time. And I've had that happen to me a, a few times over the years, where suddenly I don't know if it's like the like the tipping point idea or something like that, but it's just maybe the result of a lot of things happening behind the scenes and word of mouth, you know, brewing in places and social groups that are other than our own. And then it all kind of comes to a head, and we'll we'll take you by surprise sometimes. And you know, you also never know what people are saying out there in the world about your stuff. Like the this label, <clears throat> the Numero Group, got in touch with me last year. Last year about reissuing my first recording of um, Talking Songs, which is basically an audiobook type of thing, backed with music. And uh, but it was you know a, a record from two thousand five, which. I figured everybody had forgotten about, but they were like, let's put this out on vinyl and um, do the full treatment for its 20 year anniversary in 2025. So those things pop up and I, I really like it. It's exciting. And it just, you know, I like not knowing what's going to happen. You know, a lot, a lot of good things happened last year around my book. Night. Everything will be different, like movie and TV stuff and like a book sold and stuff like that. And I like I knew the book I knew that book would do well, but I didn't know how well. And like the fact that there was all these these new things popping up was a surprise, and uh, it's a welcome you know a welcome surprise. <laughs> um, uh, you you said you knew it would do well. Uh, what are the like what? How do you know? Uh, and this kind of goes into my next question uh, with your individual works. How would you describe the relationship between? how much you like something you've made, how important it is, and or how much work you've put into it versus how well it's been received by, by the outside world. But also, um, how, do you, how do your predictions match up when you put something out uh, between like what, what does well and what you think is, you know, yeah, like, like how, how, do your, how accurate are your predictions when you're putting something out? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, none of us can predict the future, right? But I guess sometimes you just get a feeling that something is going to work. Um, and I've always had feelings while working on a certain thing that this is this was going to be bigger than 
a previous thing. It's never really like a total surprise to me how one of my works is received. Like um, with After Tonight, when I was writing it, I knew it was going to do well versus say like a quieter book, like Float Me Away, Floodwaters. So when I'm working on a book, I I usually know if it's a book that's going to resonate with people beyond the reach of the other books. Um, but I also don't care. I mean, and in the end, I'm just going to you know try and write the best book I can. But you know, I I always just write my books with myself as the audience, and use uh, just go based on my own tastes. But I mean, my book like Float Me Away, Floodwaters, <clears throat> which is quieter, not as like rock and roll as certain books. Like I think it's my best book. It's not my bestseller, and it never will be. Um, but it's the one that like I, it's the one that I'm the most proud of. So, but really, like I, 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 I usually have a feeling about a thing, but I usually I don't really care because I don't, I don't really need to make a million dollars to get a year to get by as long as I, you know, have a roof to sleep under and gas in my tank, and as long as I can eat well and uh, do whatever I want all day, <laughs> spend time with the people I love. The rest is kind of inconsequential, you know. It's details to forget and hurdles you jump over and don't look back at, and then. You just get on with your life as well as you possibly can. Well, th- that's one issue. Like, I feel like um, that I want to impress on other people a lot, just in terms of like doing what you want. Um, the the value of frugality and of living simply, you know, of like um, sort of not constantly trying to chase uh, accumulation stat or status, you know. Um, I think is a huge factor in in whether people are able to uh, sort of step back and 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 remove themselves from, I guess you would call it the rat race, <laughs> you know, um, and and I feel like you've you've done that also by by moving out uh, to to a rural Kansas and is that something that you sort of like fell into and developed over time as a necessity or was that something intentional that you like like made a, sh- a mind shift to go into that was absolutely intentional <clears throat> i'm from the west coast and uh it's really expensive to live out in california or where i was living before here in, in portland and um you know not as many people want to live in a place like Kansas for a lot of reasons, you know, whether that's opportunities or politically, but I've also, I've also seen myself get caught up in, there's this like escalation thing that happens that I've noticed. And I've been warned about that. Like you make a little bit more money, you start drinking better wines or whatever you slowly incrementally get a, you do more things that cost more money or you get a nicer car or something like this. And it slowly becomes a thing where, yeah, you might be more successful, but like your expenses, you've let your expenses rise up to meet that. And now you're into the same place you were before, which I, I found myself doing to a certain degree. And I've had to try to stop myself from going, like meeting my expenses that way. Because like when I first moved to, to into, out into the country, I was living like super raw. And like, you know, no heating most of the time and things like that. And now, you know, I own, I own land and I've got a new car and like, I've definitely seen myself taking on things that I I could 
be a lot more financially secure were I to keep my expenses where they were before. But, you know, we, we all want a little more comfort and then you get caught in like rewarding yourselves with certain things. And, but yeah, this is something that I'm constantly being like, well, no, don't do that because you're just, you know, you're just kind of fucking yourself. Pretty soon you become like Nicolas Cage bankrupting yourself by buying dinosaur bones or something. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, well, I, that's that's all the questions that I have written down. Um, do you have any anything else that you would like to add or anything like that? Um, Maybe go see me on tour this summer. I'm sure I'm going to go on tour. I don't know when it's going to happen, though. <laughs> that was one of my new, not New Year's resolutions, but plans. I'm like, I'm, I need to tour the fuck out of this year. And I, I toured a lot last year, too. But um, I don't know. It's It's important, and I enjoy it. So maybe... If you come to a show, come and say hi to me. I'm not, I would look like I'm sterner than I am. I'm actually kind of a nice person. Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the donate button on the rss.com page of this podcast or visit talkingwriting.com slash donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at talkingwriting.com. All of the interlude music for today's episode comes from Adam's album, The World of Today and the World of Tomorrow, which you can find on his Bandcamp. camp.